Psalm chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the back of the pew in front of you. While you're turning to Psalm 9, let's talk about a few things related to Psalm 9. You may have noticed that Psalm 9 has a heading or a title, while Psalm 10 does not. Psalm 9 may have originally been attached to Psalm 10, and therefore they were probably one psalm. It would take too long to try to explain it all to you. And since Psalm 9 has 20 verses and Psalm 10 has 18 verses, let's just keep them separated and we'll look at Psalm 10 on its own next week. So what's with the heading to Psalm 9? Did you even notice it? I mean, there it is in the background, probably unnoticed by many people. And then one day as you're flipping through the pages of your Bible, you notice it. It says, to the tune of Mut Laban. Mut Laban. What is that? It sounds like a French bistro. Mut Laban. What does that even mean? I'm glad you asked. Of course, you need to know Hebrew to understand How curious sounding the phrase is. The title to Psalm 9 in my Bible, the English Standard Version, says, To the choir master, according to Mut Laban, a psalm of David. Technically, uh, in Hebrew, it's Al Mut Laban. I don't want to leave out the preposition. What does that even mean, Mut Laban? In Hebrew, mut laban means death of the sun or death to the sun. So this was probably a musical tune that Israelites would sing when one of their sons died or died perhaps due to some injustice. Who knows? God does, obviously. Whatever the original situation, Psalm 9 is a psalm crying out for justice. So perhaps the Israelites did sing this when one of their sons died uh, unjustly. We're not sure, but that's my best stab at it. Psalm 9 was to be sung to the tune or the melody of Mut Laban. Mutlaban, death of the sun, or death to the sun. Literally, in Hebrew, it's death of Ben. Ben is the Hebrew word for son. Mutlaban, death of Ben, or death to Ben. Hmm, I'm not so sure I like that. If you're visiting, my name is Benji, Benjamin. Death to Ben. Maybe we should pray before we begin. Father, though we're curious about the titles or the headings to many of the Psalms, we don't understand uh, the Hebrew words, we don't know what melody or tune they were sung to. The good news, though, is that we know a lot about you from the rest of the Psalms, and we're going to learn a lot about you from the rest of Psalm 9, even though we may not fully understand what Moot Laban is there for. Thank you that we know enough of you from your word together that we're broken, rebellious sinners, and that you sent your son Jesus to live and die and be raised from the dead for us. May the power of your Holy Spirit now open our eyes and redirect our hearts to you 
and to your character, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been on a vacation, like maybe going to Disneyland or, or some cool place, and you want to take that family photo, and you give your phone or your camera to a complete stranger, and you have to tell them what button to push, how long to hold it down? You know that weirdness that I'm talking about, right? Where you ask a stranger to do something for you and then you get bossy and condescending because they don't know how to work your camera. How dare them not know how to work your camera? We've all experienced that weirdness, right? And then if you're old school, you go get your film developed or you look immediately on your iPhone as the stranger walks away and you're satisfied with the picture. They did great. They had never used your camera before. They struggled, but they figured it out and they captured that great family moment for you. The kindness of strangers captured in a moment of time on your iPhone. And then one day you see it. You don't know how you never noticed it before, but at some point afterwards, you look at your picture and you notice it. Someone photobombed you. Perhaps you don't know what photobombing is. Allow me to explain. Photobombing is when you are taking a picture and someone either jumps into the picture intentionally or unintentionally. I think the tech guys have a picture of it right here. Sometimes you take a picture of someone or something and somebody jumps in at the last second, usually making a funny face or something like that, and then your perfect picture is ruined. Or you take a family picture and then one day you notice the guy in the background who's picking his nose or eating a chili dog and and chili is running down his chin. That's photobombing. And Psalm 9 is here to tell us that we may not notice him we may not see him in the background all the time but jesus is in the photobombing business he lives to photobomb his people he loves to photobomb you he's always in your picture always in your life working for your good and for his glory even though you may not notice him. And he's always on his throne executing justice and reigning in righteousness. And that's what David wants to tell us in Psalm 9 today. We may not see him all the time, but Jesus is there. And therefore, David would tell you that you can trust God further than you can see him. Even though you don't see God, you can trust him further than you see him in your life. I stole that phrase from Matthew Henry's commentary on Psalm 9 where he said this. The better God is known, the more he is trusted. Those who know him to be a God of infinite wisdom will trust him further than they can see him. Those who know him to be a God of almighty power will trust him when creature confidences fail And they have nothing else to trust to. And those who know him to be a God of infinite grace and goodness will trust him though he slay them. Those who know him to be a God of inviolable truth and faithfulness will rejoice in his word of promise and rest upon that. Though the performance be deferred 
and intermediate providences seem to contradict it. Those who know him to be the father of spirits and an everlasting father will trust him with their souls as their main care and trust in him at all times, even to the end. You can trust God further than you can see him. And that truth makes David a little giddy as he begins Psalm 9. He's a little excited as he starts writing this song. So look at verses 1 through 2. I will give thanks to the Lord. That's Yahweh in Hebrew, all capital letters. I will give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most David starts off Psalm 9 telling us something about a situation that he recently went through. And we're about to read that in verses 3 through 6. But here at the beginning of verses 1 through 2, he begins with this joy-filled declaration to the Lord. And this is so appropriate for David because the Lord had just delivered him out of a situation. So David says in verse 1, that he will recount and remember all of Yahweh's wonderful deeds. And that's exactly what David does in verses 3 through 6. In verses 3 through 6, David will tell us that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, photobombed him when he was on the battlefield fighting his enemies. Look at verses 3 through 6. David says, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. What David is doing in verses 3 through 6 is flipping through an old photo album, if you were, where he sees that Yahweh was there with him on the battlefield. And David tells us as his enemies turned back from attacking him and they stumbled along the way, fleeing the Lord because the Lord showed up for David. His enemies were wiped out. Their cities, their heritage, their name, their memory, everything is God. Everything is gone Because Yahweh dropped his atomic bomb of justice on David's enemies. And then David says in verse 4, he will drop for us the first time why we can trust the Lord even when we don't see him. Four times in Psalm 9, David is going to talk about the Lord being on his throne. He'll do it in verse 4, two times he says it in verse 7, and once in verse 11. In verse 4, David said, you have sat on the throne. The whole reason that David survives and his enemies perish is precisely because the Lord is on his throne. And that's why we can trust God. No matter what is happening in our lives, no matter what you're going through, no matter what is happening in your life right now, you can trust the Lord because he is on his throne. Jesus is on his throne right now. You can't see him with your physical eyes, but you can see him with the eyes of faith. Jesus is on the throne right now, ruling this world and working everything out for his glory 
first and secondly, for the good of his people. And that means you can trust God further than you can see him. You may not be able to see where your life is going next week or next month or next year, but you can see far enough into the future to see where history is headed for eternity. You can't see next week or next month or 10 years from now, but you can see eternity. And David wants to share with you a picture of the future. So look at verses 7 and 8. He says, But Yahweh sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. And there goes David again. He seems to be preoccupied with Jesus being on the throne. Yahweh sits enthroned on his throne forever. He doesn't have a statute of limitations on his rule. He doesn't just get two terms and has to step down. No coup can rise up to unseat him. The very basis of all of his political dealings is one of justice and righteousness. In other words, Jesus is not like any politician that we know. Yahweh will deal with every person in the future, and he will do it righteously and with justice. How refreshing, huh? So David is saying that the deliverance that he experienced in verses 3 through 6 are just many demonstrations of where the future is headed. In other words, every trial that David endured and was delivered from through his life was just a snapshot, a Polaroid, if you will, of the future. Every time he went through some hardship and he cried out to the Lord and the Lord delivered, that was a snapshot of the future, of eternity, Yahweh reigning forever, executing justice and righteousness. So that means that everything that we go through in this life, Every time we experience some deliverance, every time we see some victory through some trouble or trial, it's just a picture, a snapshot, a Polaroid, if you will, of where things are headed in the future for eternity. Justice will be served one day. Righteousness will reign. So that means that we can trust Jesus right now at this very moment, all the way to the end of our lives. Even though we can't see that far into the future, we can't see next week, we can't see next month, we can't see next year, even though we can't see that far into the future, and even though we don't have a picture of what our future holds, we can trust Jesus because we see a picture of the very end of him reigning forever. Here's what David is saying in these verses. Hey, Israel, you can trust Yahweh. You can count on him to come through for you time and time again. I just developed the film in my camera, Israel, and I see Jesus sitting on his throne, enthroned forever, executing justice and ruling with righteousness. And I bet if David had a Twitter account, he would have tweeted that, famous evangelical phrase, 
I may not know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And that's David's point in verses 9 through 12. He says, Yahweh is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to Yahweh who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he avenges, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. David is actually telling us that he does know some aspect about the future. He knows that you can fast forward to any time in your life and hit the play button. And at that moment, the Lord will be a stronghold for you. You don't know what's going to happen one year from today. But if you were to fast forward that film, if you could, and stop it, no matter what's happening to you one year from today, the Lord will be a stronghold for you. You don't know what's going to happen 10 years from now. You don't know what's going to happen later on this afternoon. But if you could fast forward to that moment, the Lord will be a stronghold for you. You may be thinking, though, how can David say that? With certainty. How can David tell us that no matter where we stop the movie of our life in the future, the Lord will be a stronghold? How does David know that? Doesn't David know that sometimes our lives are like horror movies? What if I fast forward my life to 10 years down the road, David, and when I hit the play button, what if I'm in a horror movie and life is horrible? What if I lose my job in the future? What if I lose a loved one? How can you tell me with confidence that everything will be okay, David? David would answer you, because I know Yahweh, because I know the Lord. And that's what he says in verse 10. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who know the name of the Lord trust him no matter what's happening in their lives. There may be moments of doubt, yes. There may be moments where we cry out like that person does to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. But those who know the name of the Lord trust him. To know the name of the Lord does not simply mean that you know God's covenant name is Yahweh. To know the name of the Lord in the Old Testament means that you know Yahweh's character, who he is. You know his promises. You know how he deals with his children. You know how he runs his world. That's what it means to know the name of the Lord. So David is just saying what Matthew Henry said in his commentary when he said, the better God is known, the more he is trusted. Those who know him to be a God of infinite wisdom will trust him further than they can see him. And that means you can trust God further than you can see him. You may wonder what he's doing. You may wonder why things are happening in your life the way they are now. You may wonder why he's allowing things to happen. You may wonder why he has orchestrated everything in your life the way it is right now. But you can trust him because as Matthew Henry says, he is a God of infinite wisdom. He knows what is best for his children. 
you may have experienced some injustice in your life. But you can bank on the God of Psalm 912, the God who does not forget the cry of the afflicted. He remembers it forever. The God who hunts wicked people down. The God who avenges the blood of his people. The God who is like a bloodhound. The bloodhound of heaven who tracks down those who harm his people. You can trust in that God today. You can trust in that God and you can pray to that God and you can pour your heart out to that God when once again you find yourself in desperate need. And that's exactly what David does in verses 13 and 14 because David has now left the battlefield of verses 3 through 6 and once again he is desperate for the help of the Lord. Look at verse 13. David prays, be gracious to me, O Yahweh. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Notice that David is in a new scene in his life. He needs Yahweh to intervene one more time. And he needs that because there's a new crisis in his life. There's a a new emergency. In verses 3 through 6, David was just flipping through that old photo album, looking at pictures in the past of how Yahweh saved him on the battlefield. But now he's in a place where he needs a fresh deliverance. But catch this. It's by flipping through that old photo album of verses 3 through 6 that David has hope as he prays to Yahweh now. It's as he flips through the old photo album of verses 3 through 6, where Yahweh came down and saved him on the battlefield. As he flips through that, David is reminded once again of who the Lord is. And he says it in Psalm 910, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. David flips through the old photo album of verses 3 through 6. And he gets a refresher course on the character of Yahweh. He is a stronghold. He avenges the blood of his children. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Therefore, David prays for the Lord to save him. Once again, and David says in verses 13 and 14, if you intervene for me once again like you've always done, I will go public with it. I will start telling people about it. I'll quit talking about bacon on Facebook, Lord, and I'll start telling people how you intervene. I'll start putting, I'll stop putting photos of the food that I made on Facebook. Nothing wrong with that. We've all done that. I'll start putting photos of my kids and grandkids. Nothing wrong with that. But I'm going to start telling people, if you come through me, through for me, Lord, I'm in a pickle. I'm in a bind. I need you. I'm at the gates of death. They want to kill me. If you come through for me, I promise I'll go to Facebook and start telling everybody what you've done. I'll go to my neighbors. I'll go to my coworkers. I'll go to my family members. If you just come through, I'm trying to motivate you, Lord. Come through for me, and you can count on me to start running my mouth about the kind of God that you are. It's convicting, isn't it? So I'll stop preaching to myself here. 
and move on. But notice how David prays for help in verses 13 through 14. And then he immediately rehearses once again how the Lord had helped him in the past. It's as if David can't put down the photo album that's titled Photo Album of Deliverance. He can't put it down. He, he, he was looking at it in verses 3 through 6. In verses 13 and 14, he's saying, God, you've got to come through for me. Save me. They want to kill me. I'm about to die. And he prayed, but it's like he prays for help, and then he picks up the photo album to be reminded once again of who the Lord is. Look at verses 15 through 18. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net they hid, their own foot has been caught. Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, that's the grave, and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. It's as if David can't keep away from that photo album That's reminding him that the Lord has intervened. He keeps returning to it time and again where he sees that Jesus has photobombed him in every situation in his life. Which gives him the assurance that he needs now. Because once again he needs God to come through for him. Seeing Jesus photobomb him in the past is is giving David hope to pray that God would keep doing it now even though David can't see God right now. He looks back in his past and he says, now I see that God was at work, but I don't know what you're doing right now, God, but I see you working time and time again in my past, and therefore I have hope that you're working in my life right now, even though I can't see you, even though I have no idea what you are doing. Because Jesus is always with his people, even when we can't see him, then the needy will not be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish. How does David know this? How can he say that with confidence in Psalm 9? It's because he flipped through that old photo album and saw Jesus photobombing every picture, every scene of his life. So let me encourage you via some very practical application to flip through two photo albums in your life. And the first photo album that I would encourage you to flip through, and the most important, is the Bible. It's this book right here. The Word of God is full of pictures for you to flip through and see the faithfulness of God to His people at all times. And as you flip through the photo album of the Bible... And you see God's faithfulness that he is there always for his people. You will be encouraged to trust in him. You have to be in this book, Grace. You must read this book. It doesn't mean, and I'm not encouraging you to read the Bible for an hour at a time or to sit down and read First and Second Chronicles in one sitting. You can do that if you want. I'm just encouraging you to read this book. I'm just going to encourage you every day just to read 10 minutes. You got 10 minutes, don't you? 24 hours. All you're asking, I'm asking you to do is give 10 minutes just to be in this book. And when you do that, 
you will see the faithfulness of God. You will see the character of God jumping off of the pages of this book. And then you'll find that Psalm 9, 10 will become true for you. Where David said, And those who know your name put their trust in you. The second photo album that I would encourage you to flip through in your life is some sort of journal. To keep a journal or a diary of your problems and situations where you write down how you need God. Take a snapshot of your circumstances and then watch God intervene. Watch Jesus photobomb you. And you won't see it at the moment, but you write it down and you'll come back one day and you'll be encouraged. Because the film will be developed by then and suddenly you'll see Jesus appear in every picture. One of the ways that you can do this is by keeping a blessing box. In uh, seminary, one of my professors suggested at the beginning of the fall semester to keep a blessing box. What you do is you write down on a little piece of paper um, your needs, how the Lord has provided things that you're grateful for, and you put them in this jar or this box, and then you open it on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, and that was my Oklahoma accent coming out. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, and you read them. And we did that one year in seminary, Heather and I, and we're very encouraged to just see God's faithfulness. We tend to forget, don't we? I mean, I have a a mental journal in my head of of some significant times where God has intervened, but we we tend to forget. So get a journal, a diary, and and write write things down. I struggle to journal. If you were to find my journals, you would read that I journal for four or five days, and then I forget, and I pick it up three months later, and every single time the first entry is, I quit journaling, I need to journal more, and I'll go for five days and put it away for a few months. But write things down. And you will go back and read them. And you will be amazed at God's faithfulness. And it may be seeing his faithfulness to you in the past that you've forgotten about. As you read it, you will be encouraged for what you're going through at the moment. So let me read an example from one of my journals uh, concerning my family when we were struggling in seminary when most students were dirt poor and just trying to make ends meet. And pay attention to the dates here, at least the first one. Ladies, uh, you'll be in shock at the date here, but the date is 14 February. Okay, it's Valentine's Day. Here's what I wrote. We are broke. On Valentine's Day, we were broke. Waiting for our paycheck so we can buy groceries. Trying to pray more specifically about our needs. 15 February, God answered our prayers. There was a ton of leftover pizza from church. Dinner provided get paid tomorrow. So we must have had some function at church on Valentine's and leftover pizza or something and our needs were met. Two days later, 17 February. We have $170 to last until next payday. Praying he provides. Next day, 18 February, God provides. A letter came in the mail today stating that we had overpaid the doctor on one of our visits with the kids. We will be getting a $100 check this week. God is faithful. Just a snapshot of the many miracles that we experienced during seminary. Sometimes we would open the front door and there would just be bags of groceries there. We didn't know how they got there. One time we opened the door and there were several bags of chicken and assorted sides from Kentucky Fried Chicken. And it was still hot. 
Now, you think it's strange that you would eat some food that somebody just left on your porch, that you would eat KFC. You don't know who put it there, what they did to it. Listen, when you're a struggling, poor seminary student, you'll eat anything. But God, in his grace, led us to open the door and to find the chicken when it was still hot. It was just grace. The hope of the poor did not perish forever. We survived on Starbucks pastries that would get thrown away and a whole lot of other miracles through seminary. I could talk for hours about the miracles that we experienced. But for every one of those stories of glory, I have many other dark times in my life. Once I had to wait for over a year to find a ministry position. It was a dark year of depression and sadness and having to cling to Romans 8.28 and other promises in the Bible. And it was saying, it was basically a year of saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Understand this grace. Sometimes God answers our prayers quickly and miraculously. And sometimes he takes his time and we have to learn to trust him. We have to learn to trust him when everything is dark. But whatever is going on in our lives, Jesus is always there. He's always there photobombing us, even though we can't see him. And therefore, you can trust God further than you can see him. And so the oft-repeated evangelical saying is true. You're either about to go through a trial, you're either in the middle of one, or you're about to come out of one. And that's what David is saying in Psalm 9. And that's why he prays the way he does at the end. Look at verses 19 and 20. Arise, O Yahweh. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. David wants God to judge the nations that are in rebellion against him. David wants his enemies brought to justice. And I think the New Testament way of saying what David says here is captured by Jesus in what is typically called the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. David in Psalm 9 is just praying for the kingdom to come. David wants God's righteousness to come. He wants justice. And the best place that we see God's righteousness and justice coming together most fully is at the cross. God's righteousness, his righteous standards, his holiness was met, satisfied at the cross. When Jesus died for sinners like you and me. God was satisfied to let Jesus die in our place. God was satisfied to say all of humanity has done wrong. They're broken because of Adam's sin. They're rebels because of Adam's sin. They turn away from me. All of them. But Jesus, if you'll take their place and you'll take their blame, then my righteous standards are satisfied. That's the gospel. And yet, as I mentioned in the church newsletter this week, 
there's a denomination today that won't include the song In Christ Alone in its hymn book because it contains the following words. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. People don't want to think about God being angry at our sin and rebellion. This denomination doesn't want to think about that. La, la, la. We don't want to think about God being holy and having standards and him being angry at our sin. We've had people leave grace since we started the book of Psalms because they've heard about God being angry at our sin. And we've had people leave. I don't want to think of God that way. But it's at the cross where his wrath and justice and righteous standards are satisfied. The gospel does not make sense if God is not angry at our sin and rebellion. It's at the cross where we really see moot laban, death of the son, death to the son, Jesus, the son of God. And because of Jesus, because God did not spare his own son, as Romans 8 says, we have other promises that are true out of Romans 8. One, that he will graciously give us all things. Two, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Therefore, because of Romans 8, because God put his own son to death, you can trust God further than you can see him. Because of Mutlaban, the death of the Son of God, you can trust God, even though you can't see him right now. And some of you can't see him right now. You know, where are you, God? What are you doing? I don't see you. Are you answering my prayers? Are you listening? Are you even working? I'm crying out to you. We don't know what's in the future. I mean, wouldn't it be great to be able to, to see every event in our lives on a Polaroid picture, to be able to shake it till it dries out and then see the image appear and say, oh, that's what you're doing, God. Wouldn't it be great to have a, a set of photos of everything that is going to happen in our lives? Wouldn't it be great to get a picture from God of you shaking hands with your new boss as you accept the new position at your new job? That new job that you are going to need in three years because next week you're going to be laid off from work? Wouldn't it be great to have that picture to give you some hope to make it through until you get that new job? Wouldn't it be great to get the picture of you and that close friend of yours eating dinner together? Sometime in the future, eating dinner together at a restaurant and laughing and having fun. Wouldn't it be great to get that picture because you don't know it yet, but in one year you and your best friend will have a huge fight and you won't talk to each other for five years. Wouldn't it be great to get that picture now so when that happens, you know restoration and reconciliation is on its way? Wouldn't it be great to get a photo album of every trial, every situation, every circumstance, every relationship, every trouble that you go through in the future, and to get to see it ahead of time and how it all works out? That would be awesome, wouldn't it? If we could get that photo album, we would flip through it, and we would see that Jesus photobombed every picture, that he was there in every situation, working for his glory and for our good. Jesus is in every detail of your life right now. 
You don't see him. You wonder where he's at. You're like, are you listening? Are you responding? Just tell me you're answering. Tell me you're working behind the scenes. He is grace. He's there. He's photobombing your life right now, even though you don't see him. But one day, you will notice him. We don't have a camera that takes pictures of our future, but we can trust God further than we can see him in our future. And that's because he's on his throne. The elements at this table, the Lord's Supper, are a snapshot, a picture, a Polaroid of where history is heading. And it's the wedding supper of the Lamb. When God will gather all of his children around him and we will eat and drink together and be with the Lord forever and ever. The invitation is given. Repent, turn from your sins, and trust in Jesus. RSVP to the invitation. You don't want to miss out on this part.